Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. Good morning. It is good to be with you, and I'm glad that you brave the elements and come here. I joked with someone before the first service, I think we should have built an ark instead of a lobby. Uh, I believe it's rained every weekend now for weeks on end, and you know maybe we should do a pool. I don't know. Looks like it's what we got going on between us. We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52 today. The only text in the scripture about the childhood of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, 41 to 52, invite you to stand as we read. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now as we take up your word that we would respond and treat it as such. This is the word of God. This text is here for a reason. So help us to understand that today, to grasp it, to believe it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I don't know if you've ever heard someone speculate or offer up this kind of idea. What, what must it have been like to be the younger sibling of Jesus? Or what must it have been like to be the parent of Jesus? And then people go on to speculate things about him working miracles and saying and doing things that were absolutely spectacular. There are other writings around the time of the writing of Gospel of Luke, in the first century, second century, and there's some that speculate like that. They, they go into these great grand stories of Jesus working miracles. But that's not what you find here. You don't find that in the Gospels. You don't find some kind of assertion that we ought to even think that way. That we ought to have some kind of speculative idea of what Jesus did as a child or as a young person. Here's what we do know. In Luke chapter 1, verse 4, Luke tells us why he wrote. 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here's the question. This is the question I'm going to be asking every time we come to a section of Luke. You need to learn to ask this question. What is it that we should be certain of as a result of this text? So here's the main point today. Jesus Christ fully understood his purpose for coming and joyfully submitted himself to the Father's plan. Now, this text is often used as an explanation of parenting or as an appeal to young people to obey their parents. Now, there are applications here, and I'll make a few as we move through the sermon. However, the family and family life is not the point of the text. The point of the text lies in the first time Luke records our Savior speaking. The very first words of Jesus that point to his obedience to his Father and that this obedience to his heavenly Father takes precedence over obedience even to his earthly parents and takes precedence to obedience to anyone. It is to the Father that he must. This text centers on Christ. That's why you'll notice in the outline that the outline is not following the parents. The outline is following Christ. This text is unique to Luke. As I said earlier, Luke is the only gospel writer to include anything about the childhood of Jesus. So the first thing we see is that Jesus remains in Jerusalem as his parents depart for Nazareth. Luke begins by again emphasizing the devotion and the obedience of the parents of Jesus to the law of God. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Now, why did they do this? Because Exodus chapter 23 told them to. In verse 14, it says, Three times in the year you shall keep a, pe- a feast for me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. This is the Passover. As I commanded you, you shall not eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Second thing there to do, you keep the feast of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, that what you sow in the field, and you shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Verse 17. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So in these three different festivals, every male was to appear before the Lord. Now, go back to verse 41 and read it again. Now the parents, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So you don't just find the man, Joseph, doing what is commanded. You also see his wife, Mary, joining with him, following him in this, participating with him in the feast of the Passover. And a lot of people would stay briefly. They stay the entire week. And before I move off of this, I just want you to consider this with me. Luke does so many different things, and sometimes you wonder if it's exactly what he's doing, but I think this is pretty undeniable. So the gospel begins in the first two chapters of the birth narrative of of the coming of the Son of God. And this birth narrative, the childhood narrative, ends with Jesus at the Passover. The only time the Passover is going to be emphasized again is at the end of the gospel. 
And here's what's going to happen. You know, in the Passover, they put blood above the door so that the angel of death or the destroyer would pass over that home. But in the last Passover of the life of Jesus, the destroyer will not pass over. He will become the lamb. He will be the one destroyed. He will be the one who dies in our place. And he will be the one, not Moses, who truly sets his people free. We continue. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. It's not clear there whether this means this is the first time Jesus went or he's been going all of his life. But we know Luke wants just to emphasize here in our minds, he's 12 years old, regarded as, in Jewish culture, the age of discernment. Because the next year, when Jesus turns 13, he will become responsible for keeping the law. He will become a man. So in verse 43, when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So I have a couple of questions that need to be asked. Some for the cynical mind. Mine can go there. I can be very cynical about things. I ask questions like this. So the first question I ask is, did Jesus sin by staying behind? Ready for my answer? No. He did not. Remember, you got to ride this tension all the way through the Gospels, but particularly this text. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Now listen to this explanation. I didn't write this. This is excellent. The combination of authentic adolescence and the immensely absorbing revelation regarding his own person so occupied his mind that he did not imagine that staying in the temple would cause anyone alarm. Just being a teenager on Bart, the second party was completely consumed with his father and the understanding of what it meant. I was a youth pastor in my early life. I was a youth pastor here for a while. And I want to make a confession today. I've left students in multiple places. I was in the mall in Asheville and I walked up to Brenda Wright. I said, I hadn't seen Ted in a while. Have you seen him? She said, he's not with you. I said, no, he's not with me. We left Ted for over two hours in a restaurant. Ted was in his happy place, though. He loved... He was uh, hiding from us, and uh, we went to pick him up. He was fine. He was just being an adolescent. We weren't paying attention fully as to what we needed to do in two different vans. Now that's why we have numbers on the vans, parents, and that's why you have to stay in one so we don't leave you places. Second question I have. Should we consider Mary and Joseph bad parents? No. If you do, you're filtering Mary and Joseph through the modern context of what it means to be a parent in the 21st century, which I think needs some warnings. They're actually being good parents. Remember, he's 12 years old. 
at his next birthday, he will be considered an adult. He will be considered responsible. So as a part of this culture, it would have been absolutely normal for a 12-year-old and probably younger than that, that when you were traveling in this large group, you didn't have to hold your mama's hand. You didn't have to stay with your mother. You didn't have to stay with your dad. As long as you were in the community, you were fine. This is desperately missing in the modern age. And what we are now having are young adults who cannot make decisions. They're terrified to make decisions because they've never been taught to make them in this developmental period of their life. Now, as I said, this was normal in this culture. It's still normal. It's shockingly normal. So I'm in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. It's three o'clock in the afternoon and out of a preschool, preschool comes these four and five-year-old kids with their backpacks and they start walking down the streets by themselves to their apartments. I'm standing in the middle of the street going, what is happening? Who let these kids out? What's going on? So I call our guide over. His name was Amos. We would say Amos. Amos, I said, what's going on? Why is nobody with these kids? Why are these kids walking home by themselves? He said, yet again, as I have reminded you, young man, you are in Jerusalem. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, who's going to mess with a child in Jerusalem? I stood there for a second and I said, uh, explain a little further. He said, let me just say it this way, Jeff. You don't go to jail if you mess with a child in Jerusalem. Do you understand what I mean? Well, if you don't understand it, I'll do the math for you after the service. All right. We live in an upside down world where I confess to you, we don't know what to do. I'm going to tell you one thing we better learn to do is to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and to raise them to become fully functioning adults because that's what Joseph and Mary are doing. Now, when they discover he's missing, this is part of the heartache of raising a kid. They mess up and you mess up. All right? When they discover he's missing, they become distressed parents. Now, get this. They are 20 miles outside of Jerusalem on foot. They realize he's gone. So they travel back the second day, a full 20 miles back to Jerusalem. And on the third day, they find him. And what we see here is that Jesus responds to his parents' astonishment with an explanation of his purpose. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So here you see the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, fully God and fully man coming into play. He's 12 years old. He's learning. He's learning by listening. He's learning by asking questions. There's no evidence here that Jesus is teaching. Now, he is asked questions because it says they were amazed at his understanding of the discussion, which you can show your understanding in the question you ask, but also his answers as they began to ask him questions. So there's some form of conversation. So his parents show up. They saw him. I think this is also a nice insight. They didn't show up and make a scene. 
Her name was Mary, not Karen, okay? She show, they show up and watch. They watch what's going on. And they're astonished. This is a different word than amazed. Amazed means to be beyond comprehension. So the teachers were, they, were, they just couldn't comprehend how Jesus was in this discussion as a 12-year-old. But his parents were overwhelmed. How can this be? But Mary gets to the point, and she says, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We've been in mental agony. And you hear the overtone now of Simeon. What Simeon promised her? He promised her that a sword would pierce her soul. And here you see Jesus being about his father's business, and already it's causing pain to Mary. Son, why have you treated us like this? You've distressed us. And Jesus answers, why were you looking for me? Now here's the implication. It's not Jesus not being a smart mouth 12-year-old. Jesus is being direct and honest with him. Why, why are you in distress searching for this city? D- didn't you know I must be in my father's house? D- didn't you know where I would be? Jesus isn't surprised that his parents came back to get him. He's surprised they didn't know where to find him. Didn't you realize I'd be in the right place? I'd be in my father's place. I'd, I'd be in the holy temple in Jerusalem. They don't miss this. Luke's making sure you, get, you see it. Mary says, your father and I. And Jesus says, I'm in my father's house. It's not that he's putting Joseph in his place or Mary in his place. He's asserting the fact that God is his father that he is in a unique relationship to God, a relationship that no other human has ever had. Here's another interesting point of how Luke writes. The very first time in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus opens his mouth, he refers to his father. Would you like to guess what he says in the very last sentence that Luke records? He refers to his father. There's another thing that I don't want you to miss here. The phrase, I must, or must. Necessary. It is necessary. This is used strategically by Jesus, and Luke records it in his gospel multiple times. Let me just give you a few. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In Luke 9, 22, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third and on the third day be raised. In Luke 13, 33, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He must, at this moment, he says, I must be in my father's house. I must be about what my father is about. And when he says this, it says in verse 50, 
They didn't understand the saying he spoke to them. They didn't get it. They didn't grasp it. Everybody in this room over the age of 12 or 13, even if you're now quite older, have said this. My parents just don't understand me. You've never said that, have you? Or I don't understand my kids. I don't know about you, but I've used that as an excuse to do what I wanted to do. But Jesus didn't. His parents just completely miss it. He's emphatic with them. He's perplexed with them. Don't you understand? Don't you know? I should be in my father's house. No, they didn't. But here's what Jesus does. He returns to Nazareth in submission to his parents and ultimately to the father's plan. This incident in the temple was an isolated incident after which Jesus returns home with his parents to Nazareth. And as best you can tell, and you've got to assume, he lives a normal young adult life. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This is culminating in Mary. She's She's treasuring, she's pondering all these things that are coming together about this child. What does she see here? That he's submissive to them. He has to be about his father. He must be in his father's house, but he's submissive to them. So this makes it clear that the earlier incident with Jesus at the temple was not a case of rebellion because you see him now submissively obeying to his parents. Now, obviously, young people, this is an example to you. If the son of the living God is obedient to his earthly parents, certainly we should be obedient to the parents to which God has given us. But here's a deeper question. Why is Jesus obedient to his parents? And here's the answer. Because God commands it. God commands it. And God blesses that obedience. In verse 52, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This submissive obedience and this increasing in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man are tied together. Our tendency, our tendency is often to overemphasize the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, or it's our tendency to overemphasize the humanity of Jesus. In Luke chapter one and two, you have this this balanced understanding, the divine conception, the overshadowing by the Holy Spirit. And then you conclude here with, with Jesus growing. He's increasing in wisdom. That means intellectually he was growing. Physically in stature, he was physically growing. He was growing in favor with God and man. That means spiritually and socially he was progressing. He was fulfilling the promise of Proverbs. Chapter three, verses one to four. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace will be added to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. 
So God saved me a rebellious teenager. And here's what happened pretty fast after that. I realized if I just do what my parents say, my life would go a lot better. There's a design God's got in the world. And if you live in constant rebellion to whoever is over you, then that's your life. It's rebellion and heartache. But here, here you have the Son of God being obedient and submissive. Now let's take it a step further. There's a quote. An obedient, submissive inner spirit is key to experiencing spiritual growth. Growth in favor with God and with men. Here's what we've got to understand. Then in union with Christ, God is our Father too. And just as the apostles proclaimed, beloved, we are God's children now. This awareness of being a child of God makes us want to obey Him and empowers us to submit ourselves to others for the glory of God. Now, with that application in mind, I want to go back and ask a bigger question. Why is this here? And here's the real so what of this entire text. Do I understand the purpose of the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of the Father's plan? I'm afraid for some of you when it comes to the things of God or reading the Bible, the way you've heard preaching handled, this is one of the reasons I work my way through a book of the Bible is a lot of people see Christianity as this haphazard, disjointed group of of stories that might point to a Savior. Here's what you see in the Bible. You see this coherent explanation of the promise, the life of Christ coming together, fulfilling the purpose in the Father's plan. And in this text in particular, you see that Jesus reveals he has a unique relationship to God as his father. This is way before his ministry starts. We're 20 years away from that. He reveals that his life requires obedience to more than his earthly parents, though he must be obedient to them. He understands that his life is controlled by what God mandates, and he will obey it. His obedience to his heavenly father must come before obedience to his earthly parents or any other earthly authority. From the very beginning, Jesus indicates that where there was a divine necessity, he would obey. Now, why in the world does that matter? Here's what we typically want to do. We just want to lean in to say, you better obey. No. That's not where you better lean in. You better back up and ask this question. Why was the obedience of Jesus Christ necessary? Why? The theologians have two words. They aren't hard. This is how they break it apart. The active obedience of Christ. Let me explain it with one verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Because Adam sinned, we become sinners. We're born sinful. So that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is speaking to the active obedience of Christ. That Christ did what God commanded. That he kept 
the law of God perfectly. He is the only man to ever do it. I often will ask a trick question. Has anyone ever kept the law of God? Which most time the congregation goes say no, and I'll say you're wrong. A man did. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He kept it perfectly. And because he kept it perfectly, because he was righteous, that righteousness, which is not our own, is big word imputed. It is given to us when we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. But it's not just his active obedience. There's also the passive obedience. And you see it clearly in this text that Christ submitted. He submits to his father by submitting to his parents. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. See, he kept the law perfect, but God made him sin on the cross. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only is this imputed, it is placed on us. It's alien. It's not ours. It's a righteousness that's not our own. So you hear me, brother, sister, friend. God will never receive you based off your righteousness. Ever. Because your righteousness, according to the Bible, is as a filthy rag. But here's why he will receive you. When you trust and believe in Jesus Christ alone, and he takes that righteousness and applies it to you, that is how God sees you now and forever. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks to you, but only those who repent of their sin, who confess it is their sin that sent the obedient Christ to the cross. And it was the Christ on the cross who bore your sin. When you trust in him and him alone, this righteousness from the obedient Christ is placed on your disobedient soul. Thanks be unto God. So Jesus didn't come to be obedient to make you a better person. He lived in the necessity of who he was to make you brand new, brothers and sisters, so that you now may be able to obey God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we don't spend our time speculating on whether or not the teenage Jesus did a miracle. Thank you that your word sends our minds to the overwhelming reality of who you are and the good news of Christ. The Son of Man suffered. He was rejected. He was killed. That he took our sin upon himself on that cross. And three days later, he rose again. Thank you for the hope of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. And we confess it all centers on the obedience of Christ. So Lord, may we now be found believing, not unbelieving. And may we be found receiving the mandate of Christ that we might trust him and make him known. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You stood before 
creation Eternity in your hands You spoke the earth into motion My soul now to stay stood before my failures and carried the cross for my shame my sin weighed upon your shoulders my soul now to stay so what can I say What can I do? But offer this heart, oh God, completely to you. So I'll walk upon salvation. Spirit alive in me This life to declare Your promise My soul now to stay So what can I say? And what can I heart, oh God, completely to yeah. What can I say? What can I do? I'm 
And what can I do? Church, I want to introduce you to my friend Jackie Green. Jackie stands before you this morning to make public a commitment of faith that she has in, in, in her Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Whenever people come to unite with this church, part of that process is you sit down with a pastor and you share your testimony of faith of how you came to faith in Christ and how he has changed your life and how that fleshes out on a day-to-day -day basis. So. As Jackie and I were talking, here's what I heard her say. Not verbally, but these, this is what she expressed. There was a time in her life that she didn't hear anything about the Bible. She understood what the Bible is, but it wasn't a part of her life. That's different today. She loves the Bible. She has it with her where, where when she, every time she's here, when she's at home. There was also a time when she had no, uh, she was indifferent about the church. If she went, she went. If she didn't, she didn't. But now she loves the body of believers and has been here all this year throughout COVID when we were outside and even today. And lastly, there was a time in Jackie's life she had a near-death experience drowning when she was about seven years old and since then has been deathly afraid of the water. So we talked about that and her words to me were, I'm trusting the Lord to conquer that fear and I want to be obedient to Him. And so we stand here today before you for Jackie to express her trust in the Lord. So Jackie, what's your profession of faith this day? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. All right, my sister, based upon your profession of faith, your trust in Him, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in the lightness of His death, raised to walk in the use of life. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sharing in the joy of that. And I pray, brothers and sisters, that we would go in the joy of the Lord and share that with other people. We live in a desperate age, a desperate age, and we have the hope of Christ. I pray that we would be like Jesus. I must. I must. So let's go with that divine necessity. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Jesus